Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to share with you guys a story of something that happened to me during the week. Um, some of you may know that I went to that I went to Singapore. Um, I went to Singapore on Wednesday last week, and I got back on Monday. If you're ever in doubt, ask the wife. Um, and before we went to Singapore, I had a list of things that needed to be done, and one of those things was to change the oil in Rosie's car. You know, I did that in our courtship, and I showed her how much of a man I was, and I continue to do it now. So I changed the oil in her car because I was so busy. I didn't have a, I didn't have a chance or an opportunity to discard of the oil. So I left it in the oil tray, and I left it on the grass thinking, oh yeah, well, nothing's going to play with sump oil. And so I leave it there, and it's fine. We get back on the Tuesday, we'll get back on the Monday, the oil's still there, nothing's happened to it, it's in the same spot. I then go the next day to go get my tax done, I have an appointment, and the thing is this. I have a cat, and you can probably guess where I'm going with this story. Whenever I'm going out, the cat knows that I'm going out, so it hides outside. And it hides because it doesn't want to be put inside while I'm away. So when I can't find the cat and I'm rushing to an appointment, I just leave the door open a little bit. Now, I don't know what happened, but what I do know is I turned up home and I pull into the carport and I see the cat's wet and it's playing with a lizard. I'm like, who squirted my cat? Who's got the hose on my cat? And I walk over to the cat after parking the car and I see it's not water. It's sump oil. The cat has gone for a swim in the sump oil. I don't know what happened, but it was the bottom half of it, which means that it jumped or it fell accidentally. It didn't hop in there. It fell in there. And it was covered in oil. And you can imagine how terrible that would be for a cat because when cats clean themselves, they lick themselves. So the cat was stressing out. The cat was upset. The cat was afraid. So because, now you've got to understand, I left the door open. It runs inside covered in sump oil. It jumps up on the couch, licks itself, rolls around, runs onto the table, runs onto the floor, has a bit of a drink from its food bowl and leaves oil all over the floor. And then it thinks, hmm, I'm going to run into Ashley's bedroom. It jumps up on our bed. You know, the, the, the bed sheets we got for a wedding present, you know, it jumps and rolls all over that. And then I left the door open for my wardrobe and it jumps in on my clothes. Now, this is the point that I want to make with you this morning, and the point is this. Some things only God can clean. And I believe, you know, when you think of the cat, it was very, very difficult to clean a cat to start with, let alone a cat that is covered in oil. It took about ten washes to get the, the oil off him, and he still smells like car. But the point that I want to make for you this morning is the point that some things only God can clean. And the problem that we have as humans is the problem of sin, and only God can clean that. You know, he can only clean that through his blood. I left the clicker, Rose, if you just want to pass me the clicker just here. Um, I just want to open with a quick word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the word. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you so much that this morning we can meet in this place and worship you. It's always a wonderful thing to be in your presence. Father, may you bless the reading of your word this morning. And may you be present in a powerful way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
attracted to Jesus. I want to share with you guys a text. I invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. The Apostle Paul has some very amazing things to say here in this epistle. And he can say this with authority. He can say this with qualification because he experienced this. In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians and verse 18, Paul is demonstrating to the church at Corinth the essence of his message. The essence of the message of salvation that he preached when he went from town to town and city to city. In chapter 1 and verse 18, the scriptures read this. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You've got to understand what Paul is saying here and why he is saying this. You know, today we live in a culture where the cross is revered. It's a demonstration or it's, it's, it's a symbol of self-sacrifice. It's a symbol of mercy. It's a symbol of hope. But you jump 2,000 years ago, what was the cross to that culture and that society at that point in time? I mean, some people today, they wear a cross around their neck. Churches have crosses on them. You know, that wasn't the culture in which the Apostle Paul lived in. The cross was something that was disgusting for every single person in society but the Christians. You've got to understand this. And here Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, he's saying the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul emphatically declares that the cross is the saving power of God. It is the power of God for those who are being saved. And it would be foolishness to those who are perishing because they haven't received the saving power of God. But Paul says that the cross is the pivotal moment in earth's history where humanity is saved. It is the power of God. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's message is the message of the cross. And I want you to think about it. When Paul goes to, to Athens, when Paul goes to Corinth, when Paul even you know, sends his message, his letter to the Romans, Paul is saying to them, the message of the cross is your salvation and you should not shy from it. And this is powerful. Because he's saying this to a group of people in a particular time where the cross is the most shameful thing that could ever be understood or known. He continues down in verse 23 and the scriptures read, But we preach Christ crucified. You want to know what Paul preached? This was his message. Everything else um, was embodied by this one theme. He would go to a place and he would say, where's the, where's the local synagogue? They would point that direction. He would go to the synagogue and he would start sharing the prophecies in the Old Testament and saying, Jesus Christ crucified. If it wasn't a synagogue that he was after, he would say, where's the common meeting place? Where's the marketplace? And he goes there and he says, I have a, I have a truth to tell you. And because in the Greek and Roman societies, there was a great emphasis on philosophy and logic, they said, okay, well, if you have a thought, you can come and share it. And he started to share it, and they were listening. But as soon as he gets to the point about a crucified Savior, the rubber met the road, and the record stopped, and it was just, what? You're saying that my salvation is in a man who couldn't even save himself. 
Can you see why he says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God? Because in the culture, the society of the time, for the Roman to think that your salvation is in a crucified man was complete foolishness. And then on the other hand, from the perspective of a Jew, the scriptures say that it is a stumbling block to the Jew. That word in the Greek literally means scandalon, which we get the word scandal. For the Jews, the, the message of a crucified deliverer was a scandal at best. And to the Greeks, it is foolishness. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You've got to understand that from a Jewish perspective, if someone hung on a tree, they were cursed by God. So Paul goes out and he goes to the local synagogue and he goes to the local meeting places and he says, your salvation is in a crucified man. The Jew would think, no, 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 no. A man who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. And for the Greek and for the Roman, they would think it's foolishness because the cross was the most brutal, the most humiliating way to die. Isn't it amazing that God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise? And although society distanced the cross and society cast contempt on the cross, the Christians couldn't do without it. Because the cross was the essence of their message. It was the essence of their salvation. It was the truth in which they preached above all others. I want you to, to, to listen to this statement by a man. He's a Roman citizen, Cicero, in the first century. He says, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. This is the Roman perspective of crucifixion. And then Paul has the audacity to say, your salvation isn't a man who was crucified. Can you see why it was so difficult for them to believe? You know, I'm going to show you another picture on the screen here. This is actually some graffiti that they found in Rome around the first century. This is the graffiti just here on the left-hand side. But on the right-hand side, you actually see that um, someone's actually gone over it with a, with a black line to kind of bring it out for us. They found this in someone's, um, on a wall. It was inscribed with a sharp instrument. And basically what the picture is, it's a picture of a man on the cross. You can kind of see this just here. This is the cross just here. But instead of the man having a normal man's head, he has a donkey's head. You know. And basically the whole point of this picture was that it was a ridiculing message that was given to a man by the name of Alexamos, Alexamos in Rome. And basically the inscription was this, because this man here is worshipping this animal or donkey on a cross, which was supposed to be Jesus. Okay? And he's saying, Alexamos worships his God. Can you understand the contempt and ridicule that is in that? That this man believes that his salvation is in the cross. Current society is saying, no, it's the stupidest thing. It's foolish. It's foolishness that a man can receive salvation through a man that couldn't even save himself. But Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. You know, there's a statement that we're probably quite familiar with. And it's in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. And it's three words, three powerful words. God is, can you finish it off for me? Love. God is love. God is love. Nowhere in all of scripture does it say love is God. You know what I mean? It says God is love. Now, this thought isn't my own original thought. It's actually from a good friend of mine, Matt Parrott. And this is what he shared with me. It's a powerful, powerful truth. He says, you look at a tree outside 
and you say a tree is wood, but you would never say wood is tree. You guys drove on a road to get to church today. You would say the road is bitumen. You would never say bitumen is road. You drove in a car today, I'm assuming. You you would say the car is steel. You would never say steel is car. And the whole purpose of this is our understanding of love is incomplete from a human perspective, if that makes sense. How could we understand the fullness of love? How can we understand the gravity of love? How can we understand the depths of love? When love is infinite and God is huge, how can we bottle him in and understand the fullness of who he is? Scripture declares quite emphatically that God is love, not the other way around. And God should never be limited to our understandings of love. But I want to show you something this morning. And this thing that I want to show you is the fact that God's love is a holy love. It's not a sentimental love. It's not a mamsy-pamsy love, but it's a holy love because he's a holy God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 89 and verse 14. Psalms 89, 14. And when you've got there, just say amen. Psalms 89, 14. Are we there? It says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Now, I want to ask you a question, and the question is this. Can God's throne be moved? Can God's throne be changed? Does God have a split personality where he is one thing somewhere and then another thing somewhere else? God is consistent. God does not change, and the foundations of his throne never change. If God changed, then would he be God? He would cease to be God. So here it says, righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. In other words, God is a God of complete righteousness, just as much as God is a God of complete Justice. God is a God of complete mercy, just as God is a God of complete truth. Does that make sense? So when we think of God's love, we think of God's love in the context of his holiness and his majesty and all that he is. And scripture opens up windows and it shows us many things about who God is. It shows us that God is a loving God with everlasting love. He draws us, but it also shows us that he is a truthful God, a righteous God, and a just God. Does that make sense? And all throughout scripture, when God saves, God saves by showing his righteousness and his justness. I'm going to make this point. From the first book in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, Adam and Eve take the fruit, they eat the fruit, they disobey God. God comes in chapter 3, and God reveals himself to them in chapter 3. Now, this is really powerful. Does God give mercy to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3? Does he? Well, they live. And he provides them with a promise and the first messianic promise in verse 15 that the Messiah would come and crush the head of the serpent. But then justice as well. What would happen to the Messiah? He would receive a wound himself. Mercy, humanity, justice 
himself. And there's even consequences that are given to Eve, to Adam, and to the serpent. Justice and mercy. Whenever God saves, he exercises both. You come to the story of Noah. God says, Noah, there's a flood coming. I want you to build me a boat. Mercy. And Noah, not just build me a boat, but for 120 years, I want you to preach about the flood that's coming. Would you say that's mercy extended to humanity? But then what what happens? What comes? The flood. Justice. Mercy and justice. You jump another number of chapters forward and you come to Sodom and Gomorrah. Was mercy given to Sodom and Gomorrah? The God spared them. Remember Abraham, he's kind of debating with God for this many, for this many, for this many. And eventually they get down to the like, Lot and his family. And when the angels go in and, and Lot and his family are saved, mercy. But there's justice there too. Because whenever God saves, he exercises both. And justice and mercy aren't things that are independent of God. They're not things that are external from God. It's who he is. Does that make sense? When God saves, he saves in a way that's consistent in himself. And I think a lot of the time when we look at the Old Testament and we look at the New Testament, we think, well, God was different in the Old Testament and God is, is new in the New Testament. He's the same God. He does not change. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne because if God changed Old Testament to new, then that would basically mean that God changes and God will cease to be God, which is false. You even come to the the story of um, the Exodus. The message of mercy is even given to Pharaoh. Let my people go. He resists justice. You even come to the story of the children of Israel, the Jewish... And I could show you story after story after story after story. It's just riddled with this whole theme. When the children of Israel go into captivity through Babylon, had God given mercy to the Jewish nation? Prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And then judgment comes, justice comes. And even in the judgment, even in the justice, guess what happens? It's only 70 years, guys. Mercy. Isn't it so powerful that when God saves, he shows his justice and he shows his mercy. And the completest demonstration of God's saving act is one pivotal moment which Paul preached. We preach Christ crucified where justice and mercy kissed. Mercy extended towards humanity and justice absorbed and experienced upon God himself. It's a powerful demonstration. It's a powerful truth. And I just want to give you an illustration here. Say I was walking down the street with Rosie. Sorry, Rosie. I'm walking down the street with Rosie, and Rosie turns to me and says, Ashley, do you love me? I'm like, yeah, I love you. She says, prove it. So I throw myself in front of a car. And I'm on the side of the road like this. And I'm like, see, I love you. She's like, what are you doing? And this is, this is something I want you to understand. If God coming to earth to die on a cross for us was merely a demonstration that he loves us, then that would be a weird way to do it, wouldn't it? When God came and died on a cross for, this, for us, it was a demonstration of love only because it was the act of salvation. Let me, let me do this illustration again. Rosie's walking across the road. A car is coming towards her and it's going to hit her. So I run and push her out of the way and then get hit. Is that different? 
Is that a demonstration of love? It's a demonstration of love because it's an act of salvation. And this is an important point that I want you to understand. You know, if there's nothing that God gets angry about, and I want to make this point, God's anger is different to our anger. Our anger is when we get injured ourselves. God's anger is when you get injured through sin. God is angry at sin. And this is a point that I really want to make here. Mercy would cease to be mercy if there was no justice. And justice would cease to be justice if there was no mercy. Another illustration. It was full of illustrations today. Let's just say we saw on the news a couple of months ago a man, a terrorist who hopped in a car and drove, or hopped in a truck and drove down the sidewalk. That happened in France. Did anyone hear about that? Let's just change the story for the sake of the illustration. It's a hypothetical thing. Let's just say that after this man has done this grotesque act, he's then arrested by the police. He's then taken to prison. He then awaits trial. The trial comes and he's taken out and he's put on the dock. The jury says that he is guilty. The evidences are plain. It is clear. And he's sitting there in the dock. But the judge goes, all order. I'm feeling quite merciful today. I'm going to let him off. What would you immediately say is the jury? Is that mercy? No, that is perverted mercy. Is that justice? No. The thing is, our human hearts, they scream out for justice. Our human hearts scream out for mercy. And is it awesome to know that God is both fully merciful and fully just? He deals with sin in such a way that it perfectly satisfies himself and declares himself as a God of love. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Galatians three, thirteen. The scriptures tell us quite clearly that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And if all have sinned, how many need saving? All need saving. In Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, Paul... Man, there's so much I want to share. I'm not going to say that. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Remember, Paul's message is Christ crucified. Well, what does that look like for Paul? In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, he says this. And actually, I put it up on the screen for you if you can read that. It says, Christ has redeemed us... Oops, there's a drop there. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He has purchased us from the curse of the law. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Let's just stop for a second. What is Paul saying here? Paul is declaring the way in which Jesus saves. Paul is not ashamed. Paul is not upset. Paul is not confused. Paul is not worried about using legal terminology, neither should we. And in the text just here, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this is the point that I want to make this morning. Paul knew what he was saying when he was saying this. Paul was qualified to say this when he said this because he was a theologian, he was a prophet, and he was an apostle. And Paul, with this understanding, looks back into the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21, 22 to 23, which is on the screen just here, and he quotes this 
verse. This is why the cross was a scandal for the Jews. Because if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, for he who is hanged is accursed by God. No wonder when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and the people walked past and they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, the scriptures tell us that they wagged their fingers at him. He's cursed by God. He's forsaken by God. And then Paul goes to the Jewish temple and he says, Your salvation is in a man that was cursed by God. No wonder it was a scandal. A scandal on. But it wasn't just something that Paul briefly mentioned here. It's also seen throughout the book of Acts. Now, you've got to understand that the book of Acts... It isn't a theological book in the sense that the book of Romans is. But that doesn't mean that it's devoid of theology. Mostly it has narrative, but there's a lot of theology in the sermons that are preached in Acts. And we see this constant theme being preached by the apostles. Look at it. The God of our fathers, this is from Peter, this is what Peter says. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. In Acts chapter 10, it says, Whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And Paul even jumps in on the axe, and they said they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. They were not apologetic with the words that they used because they understood that God, in order for him to save, cannot contradict himself. He must declare perfect justice and declare perfect mercy. These things aren't external from him, but they are exactly who he is in the fullness. And when Jesus died on the cross, mercy and justice fully kissed. Does that make sense? Before we go a few steps forward, I just want to make this point. The Bible says in John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. When Jesus suffered, guess who else suffered? The Father. It would be silly for us to say that the Father did not suffer. They went to Calvary together and they suffered together. All of heaven suffered through Jesus' atoning death. And what I want to do in this part of our study as we wind this down, I want to have a look very, very quickly at Jesus' last 24 hours. And this is so cool, guys. Jesus first goes to the meal, to the garden, to the cross. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. Luke twenty-two twenty. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, go and prepare um, a room that we can celebrate this last supper with one another. Jesus goes into the room, the disciples are there, they sit around, they break the bread, they drink the cup. But Jesus does and Jesus says some very interesting things. Chapter 22 and verse 20, Jesus takes the cup from the feast. It says, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus takes his disciples and says, Guys, my blood is about to be shed for you. He's referring to the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. He's referring to himself as the substitute that would die on sinner's behalf. My blood is the commodity which purchases you, which saves you. Drink this blood which was shed for you. For you. 
You notice that Jesus isn't in the upper room saying, Hey, Peter, John, James, let's do a bit of an affirmation circle. And let's look over my past three years of ministry and let's share testimonies. Peter, do you remember when we walked on the water together? Peter, do you remember when I gave sight to the blind? Oh, Peter, do you remember when we came down from the mountain and we cast out that demon from that young boy? Do you remember that? It was so exciting. I fulfilled my mission. Is that what Jesus is saying in the upper room? In Jesus' opinion, is his mission fulfilled? Not until the cross, and this is a point, this is so, so true. 33 years of Jesus' life are fulfilled in the last 24 hours. Jesus is at the end of his life, and he's not looking back on his life as a mission that has been fulfilled, but he's looking forward at the cross as a very fulfilling act in which everything will come to pass. No wonder in the book of John, he says 13 times, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, and then finally he says, my hour has come. For Jesus, the cross was the fulfilling act where everything came together. It wasn't the living of his life, but it was the giving of his life that provided salvation. No wonder the book of John, the majority of it, is committed to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Because that was the act in which saved humanity. Jump with me now to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38. We now go to the garden. Jesus leaves that upper room, he leaves Jerusalem, and he goes out across the Kidron Valley, and he goes into his favorite place to retire, the olive grove called Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38, he takes his disciples into the garden, and he takes them into the garden, he says, guys, I want you to pray for me. He then goes further into the garden. And as Jesus goes further into the garden, we see these words. Well, he says this to his disciples. These words in verse 38. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Is Jesus suffering, yes or no? Has Jesus been whipped yet? Has Jesus been beaten yet? Has Jesus been scorned yet? Has Jesus been taken to trial yet? Has Jesus been betrayed yet? No. But yet Jesus here is saying, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. What is Jesus saying here? In other words, what is Jesus saying? I'm dying. I'm dying. You know, what I find so amazing in this text is this. Jesus calls his disciples in previous chapters to be strong in the midst of opposition, even unto death. Don't worry about what words you're going to say. I will give you words to speak. But Jesus is dying a worse death than his followers die. You know, you look at many biblical, many you know examples from martyrs where they basically said, "If you don't, if you don't toe the line, then we're going to tie you up to a pole and we're going to burn you alive." And they take them and throw them in the Colosseum and they pray to God. They tie them up behind posts and they sing praises to him. They even crucify them and they glorify his name. Jesus' followers die better deaths than what Jesus does himself. You even think of Jerome and Huss 
as they take into the stake and as they die. This is in the great controversy. And this is a powerful statement when it talks about Jerome and Huss, who were martyrs who died for the sake of Jesus. It says, both bore themselves with constant mind when the last hour approached. Was Jesus firm? Yes. Was Jesus committed? Absolutely. But was Jesus scared? He was absolutely terrified. You know, the Greek actually means, he says, that he was horror-struck. They prepared for the fire as if they were going to a marriage feast. They uttered no cry of pain. When the flames rose, they began to sing hymns, and scarce could the vehemence of the fire stop their singing. The fires are billowing around them, and they're singing praises to God. How powerful is that? And Jesus, without receiving any pinpoint of a knife or a dagger, is saying, Father, I'm dying. Is there any other way to save them? Was there any other way to save humanity? Three times he prays that prayer. Does he get a response? No response. Because this was the only way for God to save, for mercy and justice to kiss. He must shed his blood. He who knew no sin must become sin for us. He must become a curse. He must take our place. He may pay, must pay our penalty. He must take our consequences. And he must die our death. No wonder it says in Desire of Ages that he felt by sin he was being separated from his father. Listen to these words. The gulf was so broad, so black, so deep that his spirit shuddered before it. He was stepping into the unknown and no one had ever stepped there before. And his soul was being crushed. The Old Testament gives us the symbology of the cup as God's wrath. Jesus is experiencing justice because he takes your sin and he takes mine. So he bears the consequences that we deserve. He satisfies justice. He satisfies mercy. But at the same time, father and son, they go together. Jump with me now to the next chapter. And before we we read this text, I want you to know that Jesus accepted that cup. He needed to for you to be saved. In John chapter 18, 11, he says, Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? The Father gave his Son and Jesus gave himself. They were in it together. And in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And it says, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Darkness is a symbol of judgment. You know when Jesus shares parables and the baddies get thrown into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth? That's hell. And Jesus here is in outer darkness. He's experiencing the second death. He's experiencing hell. Darkness covers the land. It is so thick that you cannot see. I've been caving before. And the thing is, you go outside, you know, particularly in Wollombar, the stars are brighter than the moon, and you're outside, and you can still see. You can still see your hand in front of you. Has anyone been in such pitch black darkness that you cannot see your hand even in front of you? I've been caving, and I'm there caving, and my sister was with me, and she was relying on my torch, so I turned my torch off. And I could not see my hand. And I went right up close to her face and turned it on. Just to scare her. I'm a bit of a stirrer. 
But I just want you to understand that the darkness was so thick for Jesus, no wonder he couldn't see through to the portals of the tomb. He couldn't see through. He thought the cross was it. He thought it was finished. The, the, the guilt was so broad, so black, so deep, that his spirit shuddered before it, and he thought that it was it. He thought that that was it. And we see in this next verse, in verse 46, at the ninth hour, Jesus dies prematurely, extremely prematurely. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the first time, church, in all of Scripture that Jesus has not referred to his father as father. There's no Abba, Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father's heart was pierced. The Son's heart was pierced. The scriptures say, the prophecies say that he treads the wine press alone and he goes and he takes our place and he dies our death that we can receive the life that comes from him and him alone. No wonder the cross is a demonstration of love because at it we find the saving act of God where he satisfies mercy and he satisfies justice, not things that are external from him, but who he is in person, the foundation of his throne. He saves in a way that is consistent with himself and he declares to the universe that he has power to save. No wonder Paul, when he went to Athens, when he went to Corinth, when he went to all the places that he went, he said, but we preach Christ crucified. You hung him on a tree. But the powers of sin could not hold him. Some things only God can clean. We're not talking about oil here. We're talking about sin. And we've all jumped into the bucket. And we've all got it on us. We all need saving. And there's only one who can save you. And he does. And he has. In a way in which he does. He takes your place, he pays your consequences, and he gives you life. That person is Jesus. And the soap that he uses isn't detergent, it's his blood. And it was spilt for you. As he gives the cup to his disciples, he says, This is my blood which is shed for you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you so much that you have done whatever was necessary to save us. We want to thank you. Father, we want to thank you for sending your son. And we want to thank you, Jesus, so much for giving yourself. Words cannot express our appreciation. I just want to claim the scripture in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, which says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. We want to thank you that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that he took our curse, that we can enter through those pearly gates one day. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen.
If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abnaustralia Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support. A short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Whilst the long night of the dark ages covered Europe and darkness covered the people, the lamp of truth still shone brightly in Scotland and Ireland. These two countries on the brink of the known world stood like a wall to resist the menace of advancing religious tyranny. Scotland in particular, like the Waldenses in northern Italy, found in her rugged mountains a fortress. Iona is an isolated island that has become famous in Christian history. It became a central point to the Celtic church for many centuries, preserving true biblical faith, teaching, educating, and sending out missionaries. The story of Iona starts with a man by the name of Columba, who was actually from Ireland and was born of royal descent. He lived in Ireland and worked there till the age of 32. And from the ages of 25 to 32, he is credited with raising up over 300 churches, having a missionary spirit burning deep within him. He set sail from Derry in the year 563 with 200 of his companions and came to Scotland. They landed here in Iona, just off the coast of the Isle of Mull, in this bay, which is today named Columbus Bay. Despite finding a windswept and barren island, they built houses, planted crops, and founded a Christian school, which would later attain the highest reputation for the pursuit of biblical study and science. The students had a well-rounded education, and in addition to their classes, they would spend time in physical labor, in gardening, in baking, in farming, and in prayer and singing. The students would frequently have to spend 18 years of study before they were ordained for the gospel ministry. It was not a monastery, and they were not monks. It was a great mission training institute. The Bible was central to Columba and the school here in Iona. Columba built a church on the Bible and the Bible alone and is credited with copying 300 copies of the New Testament himself with his own hands. Imagine how many copies 
his students and fellow faculty produced over the many years the school was based here on this little island of Iona. They followed the commandments of the Bible, including keeping the fourth commandment. In fact, the church here in Iona kept the Sabbath for several centuries. In many ways, the believers here were preserving a faith that was handed down to them over the generations since the earliest believers. They did not see themselves as reformers or as breaking away from Rome, for the faith that they kept had been around much longer. Columba labored here for 34 years before passing to his rest on the 9th of June, which was a Sabbath day. Iona would for many centuries be a leading center of the Celtic church, sending missionaries out from the shores of Scotland flowing to the continental church. Columbus followers would hold this island for 641 years before they were driven out by the Benedictine monks. Iona stands to us today and gives us lessons in the missionary work that took place here. While today many people come for a time of peace, reflection and contemplation, a place where they can feel closer to God. We cannot deny the work that took place here. Maybe God is calling you to go and get trained like the missionaries who would come here to be trained and would go out for service. Maybe God is calling you to be trained for mission service. Maybe he's calling you to a life of full-time ministry. Maybe God is calling you to change the whole course of your life. And if God is calling you, harden not your heart and follow the Lord's leading. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. There's a name above all others, wonderful to hear, bringing hope and cheer, oh it's the lovely name of Jesus. Evermore the same, more the same. What a lovely name! Oh, what a lovely name! The name of Jesus, reaching higher, reaching higher far than the highest stars, highest stars, sweeter than the songs they sing. What a lovely name Through his name there's wondrous power Power to redeem Making sinners clean Cleanse the lepers, open blinded eyes, cause the dead to rise. What a lovely name, the name of Jesus.
reaches us, reaching higher, reaching higher far than the highest stars, highest stars, sweeter than the songs they sing in heaven. Let the world proclaim what a lovely name His name. Shall behold his face, with him enter heaven's city, ever to proclaim what a lovely name. Stars, highest stars, sweeter than the songs they sing in heaven. Let the world proclaim what a lovely name. Thank you to Michael Lining for that beautiful song, What a Lovely Name. Coming up next, we have the Ball Brothers with I'll Do Anything. She found a Gideon Bible in that cheap motel. She read the story about Jesus and the woman at the well. She found herself inside those pages wondered how she had got so far gone, so far away from home, and she cried out. Start all over 
Next, we have For Eternity with Father Along.
It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.